Welcome back, everyone. I'm super right. excited to be here. Todd, excited? I was, I'm as excited as I get. Perfect. I'm really passionate about the next topic we're going to be talking about. We're so lucky to have Rebecca Brown with us, who's the director of policy, which I don't exactly know what means, at the Innocence Project, which is, I think, the nonprofit. We're going to get her to give us the detail that was started like 20 years ago by, I think, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. They're from the O.J. O.J. Simpson uh, DNA fame, but they go around the country and they look to prove people's innocence who are falsely accused. And I follow them. I followed them for years. And the stories are heartbreaking. You have literally unbelievable amounts of people in prison. And it's, I don't want to, I'm exaggerating when I say half of them are there for, for terrible reasons. There's people there sit there and rot for 30 years. The government doesn't care. The politicians don't care. And Rebecca and her group go around the country and they look to prove people innocent. So, and on that topic, we had, uh, I don't know if you remember, we had Sidney Powell, who wrote a great book, I'm going to give her a plug right. now, called License to Lie, Exposing Corruption at the DOJ. Sidney's my hero, and I'm pushing her now. Um, but Rebecca, you're with us, let's bring you right on. Thanks for having me. Rebecca, I can't tell you how much it means to me, because I really believe the criminalization of America is ripping apart the fabric of society. But maybe you can start, because I, I know the Innocence Project just by following it on Facebook and Twitter, and I, I actually go, they, you guys produce great YouTubes on the stories behind the people. But maybe you can educate uh, our viewers on what the Innocence Project does and the good work that it does, and then I, I want to get into some specifics. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And um, so the Innocence Project was founded. We just uh, celebrated our 25th anniversary. Um, and we uh, have a dual mission, first to free the actually innocent using uh, traditionally post-conviction DNA testing, but now moving into other areas of evidence to prove innocence. Um, and also to take uh, lessons learned from those DNA-based exonerations to identify the causes of wrongful conviction and to try to prevent wrongful convictions from happening uh, moving forward. So that's really where our policy work comes in. So our policy department works both to reveal wrongful convictions through the creation of statutory mechanisms that allow people to prove their innocence post-conviction, um, and then also trying to prevent wrongful conviction from happening in the first place through a series of different reforms that I'm happy to talk to you about. I want to talk about them, but first I want to put it in perspective. I just Googled some st statistics, and I'm just going to tell, spit them out and tell me if I'm close or wrong. Something like 4.5 million people are under probation or parole currently. 2.3 million people are behind jail. 70 million people, or a third of our citizens, have criminal records. And 2% of the people can't vote because of it. Are my numbers somewhat close? I think that they sound somewhat close. I don't know of every single statistic that you spoke to, but I mean, certainly we are incarceration nation. We do have 2.3 people, 3, 2.3 million people behind bars here, many millions more under community supervision of some kind, meaning, you know, they're under electronic monitoring or on probation, parole. Um, and so we have a massive system. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population. 
when did, how did this happen to us? Because it seems to me that, there, that we, we have an out of control system. If you read about it, and I've read about it more, we've done a bunch of shows on it, so I'm, believe me, I'm not an expert, but there's like tons of people, when I say tons, hundreds of thousands in jail because they can't meet minimum bail. You know, for like a thousand or two thousand dollars, we're locking people up for for a long time, and it seems that our system has gotten from a system that I remember when I was a kid. I used to hear, you know, justice, justice shall prevail, and you know, the, the, rather one, what is it? Rather one guilty or a hundred guilty go free, and one innocent go to jail, and you're proven innocent until guilty. But it seems all that's hogwash. All that's propaganda. I've come to believe that that's all propaganda put out by the government. And it seems when the government, and no offense, I know, I'm not talking about everybody, and I'm not talking about all DAs and all district attorneys, but when a lot of the US attorneys want to get someone, they'll put enough pressure on them to get them to plead guilty just to a lesser crime. They stack charges against people. They, they don't have to tell you the truth. They use all kinds of deceptive methods to hide the truth and to get guilty pleas instead of the truth. When did this, did this like happen at one point in time or has it been a slow process or, I don't know, what's the history? It just seems we're in such a bad place with this. Well, the, you know, the, the prison population has been steadily growing um, since the 1970s. Um, in, about, in the 70s, we had about 200,000 people behind bars and that has, of course, mushroomed to 2.3 million. So we, unlike almost any country in the world, and there are a few exceptions, um, you know, we incarcerate our way out of social problems, I believe, that we have not solved. And, um, and you know, I think it was Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or one of the Russian greats who said, you know, if you want to learn about the health of a society, look inside of its prisons. And I think, you know, when you look at the fact that we deinstitutionalized a lot of the mental health facilities in the 70s, but then never did community-based mental health care, which was supposed to be the follow-up to deinstitutionalization, um, what we found was instead people were being criminalized for mental illness. Um, and many social problems um, and social issues are indeed criminalized in our culture. And I think that, you know, we have to take a hard look at who we're criminalizing, why, um, and whether this is actually making us a more safe country. Um, and I think arguably it is not. Um, we criminalize mental health problems. We criminalize drug addiction. Uh, we criminalize race in our country. And so I think, you know, we really have to begin to take a hard look at what we are criminalizing and also take a look um, to an extent, and, and you spoke to this earlier to an extent, but sort of the incentives that are baked into our criminal justice process. Right. I mean, I don't think, for instance, prosecutors get rewarded for not moving forward with a case when they think that there is insufficient evidence. You know, prosecutors are promoted based on, you know, the number of convictions that they can secure. Um, and there are so many incentives that are built into the system. You, you touched before on the guilty plea problem. Um, you know, people that simply can't make cash bail. Um, often find themselves in a position of pleading guilty to, you know, avoid a harsher sentence or a harsher punishment. We know from the 356 DNA-based exonerations in the United States that 10% of those people pled guilty. And those are serious violent felony crimes. Those 356 DNA-based exonerations are crimes like rape and murder. So 10% of people are pleading guilty to crimes like rape and murder because they actually think that that is the rational choice. That is the choice 
choice that is going to help them to avoid more prison time, then imagine the extent of this problem when you spread it out across the misdemeanor system where the stakes are lower. Right. Um, if people simply can't make bail, um, they are much more likely to plead guilty to avoid a harsher sentence. And so I think that there are a lot of incentives built into the system, including um, incentives built into the system for people facing charges, that, in fact, it does make rational sense for people who are innocent to plead guilty to avoid a harsher sentence. Right. Now, there's other incentives on another level that I don't even think you guys have mentioned yet, but what about the for-profit angle of our prison system and the incentives that they have to keep more people in their prisons for longer periods of time because they're being paid to do so and to build new prisons to house new prisoners? Right. Well, I mean, certainly privatization is is an aspect of this problem. And, you know, certainly, you know, one can see incentives that are tied to privatization. Um, you know, uh, certainly a lot of sort of criminal justice experts have exposed kind of the rise in, you know, mandatory minimums um, and other um, criminal justice policies um, you know, that are, you know, intimately tied to prison sentences um, and the length of sentence. So I think, you know, all, there's a confluence of factors um, that is leading to just the explosion in our criminal justice problem. Um, and, you know, and I think that we've reached a point where people understand that it's just no longer sustainable. We can't have a system that is, you know, of this magnitude and expect to deliver both justice and public safety at the same time. I think we have to take a hard look at, you know, uh, sentence length, what we're criminalizing, the police system. Um, you know, we have to take a hard look at race in this country. Um, so I think there are so many pieces to this that need to be unpacked. But I think, you know, what's fascinating about the criminal justice system always is that it kind of exposes a lot of trends happening at the same time, a lot of pro social problems that we just haven't gotten underneath and then try to solve our way out of through criminalizing certain you know, members of our of our population. So I think, you know, this is it's it's certainly a scourge and something that hopefully policymakers are going to continue to move towards changing. It seems they're start for, I don't know, a couple of years now, I think in Obama's term, they started to expose and they've been talking about criminal justice reform. And Trump's certainly um, done a lot more than the left thought he would do on it. He's talking about it. He's at meeting. But what's the holdup with reforming some of the systems? Absolutely. And uh, by the way, there's just a little bit of echo, so I can't really hear so well. I'm not uh, sure. I apologize. No uh, worries. I'm not sure what it, to it, do because we it, don't hear an it, echo. It's usually that way when I speak with women. <laughs> th th that's usually, no, I'm joking around. Um, I apologize. Hopefully our IT folks and our technical people get it straight. So what I was saying is it seems there's starting to be more and more conversations about reforming the criminal justice system. And it seems that there's starting to be more and more bipartisan support for it. So what's the holdup? It seems there's bipartisan support. Um, you've had Obama certainly backed it. It appears that Trump is backing it to some degree. What's the problem? Why can't we get it done? Right. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, while there is absolutely growing momentum and bipartisan support for reforming the system, you know, the devil is always in the details. You know, for instance, you know, one of the bills that is being 
you know, sort of is the is being hotly debated right now at the federal level is called the First Step Act. This is a White House proposal right now that seeks to address uh, criminal justice. And um, and many advocates, you know, who are working on criminal justice reform um, are really incredibly concerned that the bill really um, is focused much more on reentry and um, prison conditions and not really focused on sentencing. And so many folks feel, you know, in the criminal justice community that, you know, if this is the time for, you know, the federal system to take a look at the criminal justice process, you know, it, it is actually also the time to look at sentencing as well. And I think that there's a fear that if we're to move forward solely with, you know, issues around, you know, uh, prison conditions at the federal level um, or, you know, reentry, that we're in fact kind of missing the big piece, which is, you know, sentencing, who we're putting away, for how long, um, you know, all kinds of disparities in the system. Um, so I think that, you know, there's really, um, you know, there is definite movement. Um, I think that we're seeing a lot of progress. Um, and I think that the public is awakening to a lot of these issues. For instance, I think the public is really becoming much more aware of the importance of district attorney elections and sort of the issues at play there. Um, but I think, you know, this is enormous system. We went again from 200,000 people to 2.3 million people in a 50 year time span. And so, you know, unpacking that and, you know, and moving away from that is going to take, you know, a Herculean effort. Um, and quite frankly, another holdup is the fact that 90% of crimes are prosecuted at the state level. And that really requires sentencing reform to happen state by state. You know, the federal system, while we can attack it, and there are many reasons to do so, you know, that's only going to really affect about 10% of the nation's prison population. So in order to really effectuate true criminal justice reform, we really have to take a look at the states and make sure that state level reform is moving along um, as it should. And, um, and you know, a big part of our work at the Innocence Project is, in fact, working state by state, trying to prevent wrongful convictions state by state. Rebecca, I, we jumped ahead. I feel like we jumped into this interview and just started with all this stuff. I have so much pent-up frustration at the <laughs> system. I just wanted to <laughs> jump in, which is my typical style. But why don't you tell us the some of what the Innocence Project does and how people get in touch with you, how you, I guess, appoint them lawyers and prove their innocence. And I, I think it was yesterday, the day before, I read oh, that some guy was in jail for like 25 or 30 years. And right. uh, uh, you guys got him out. He was totally innocent. And while you're at it, please, please inform us how you choose or get your cases that you work on. Sure, absolutely. So for folks that just want to learn more about kind of what cases we take and how they can get more information and get their cases reviewed by the Innocence Project, please do go to www.innocenceproject.org. There's a ton of information about that. Um, but to answer your question, the way that we get cases is that uh, people write to us. Um, people write to us from behind the bars. Um, they have heard of us. Um, there are a good number of, uh, you know, jailhouse lawyers at this stage who are, you know, educating other people who are behind bars. Um, and so people write to us and we have an extremely talented, wonderful uh, intake unit in the Innocence Project. And they are the people that are culling through all of these letters, looking at police reports, looking at crime lab reports, looking at the evidence that was presented at trial, court transcripts, et cetera, and really trying to determine whether or not there is a viable claim of actual innocence. Um, you know, we don't take on cases where we believe someone might be wrongfully convicted, but based on a legal technicality, like they didn't receive effective counsel. Um, we're really taking on cases where we believe a person is factually innocent. 
Um, and so um, we have a rigorous process that we undertake for you know any person that writes to us, and um, and our intake unit then brings those cases to our legal department, and then our legal department um, makes the final determination about which cases to move forward with. So um, we have you know at any given time about 250 active cases. Um, you are absolutely correct that people are getting out of prison after decades behind bars. We had a case out of Louisiana just about two months ago, three months ago. Um, man named Malcolm Alexander, who served 38 years behind bars based on a single eyewitness misidentification. So um, these, uh, and, and that really brings us to, you know, the policy issues, right? When, when we uh, see a wrongful conviction, we take a look at kind of what all the contributing factors were to that wrongful conviction. Then we set about making policy changes to prevent those miscarriages of justice from taking place in the future. So for instance, if you look at the Malcolm Alexander case, we know there was a misidentification in that case. He comes from the state of Louisiana, where there were no protocols in place, uniform protocols in place to prevent misidentification from happening at the police agency level. Um, and just last week, um, a law was passed in Louisiana that um, really overhauled how police are to do lineups moving forward. Um, and there are a series of reforms um, that social scientists have isolated um, through scientific research to help us to best pinpoint the reforms that we can put in place to hopefully reduce misidentifications. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating issue. I mean, if you look at archival studies, which examine actual cases, um, cases where the person was guilty or innocent, we know that witnesses get it wrong one third of the time, meaning that they pick non-suspects out of lineups. Um, and why is that? Because memory is fallible and because the viewing conditions are not always great. It's not because anyone's trying to get it wrong or lying or, you know, it's just that people, you know, have problems with memory, have problems retaining the images of faces. Um, and then, of course, there is suggestion, um, inadvertent and sometimes intentional on the part of law enforcement, um, but more often inadvertent. And um, and so what we try to do is put, you know, practices in place that are going to prevent uh, people from feeling pressure to make an identification. So for instance, we tell them you should receive a directive that says, you know, the perpetrator may or may not be in this lineup. We will continue to investigate this crime regardless of whether you make an identification. We also call for the use of a blind administrator, meaning that the person administering the lineup should not know the suspect's identity um, so that he is not in a position to provide any sort of suggestion, inadvertent or otherwise, to the eyewitness. Um, you know, it's it's sort of it's a concept that we use in drug trials, for instance. So we just are, you know, transporting that concept, that fundamental scientific principle to a criminal justice setting. Um, and so, you know, there are a range of reforms that our cases help us to identify that we need to go after. Um, and so we have a team of policy advocates that work around the country um, to really put these laws and reforms in place. Are, are the local police departments working with you or do they view you as sort of, I don't want to say the opposition, but the troublemakers on the block or are they working with you? It's really, you know, generally, um, we have had pretty good experiences working with law enforcement. I mean, certainly, I think, you know, because we um, work in a defense posture in the post-conviction space, um, you know, I think to an extent we're regarded a little skeptically when we first walk in the room. But we often say, look, we come, we come in peace. We're here to kind of share with you what the scientific literature has you know, taught us over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and we know that nobody has an interest, of course not law enforcement, in identifying the wrong 
wrong person. Um, after all, every time you know you identify the wrong person, the actual perpetrator remains free in a position to commit additional crimes. Um, we often share with law enforcement some data, like the fact that of the nation's 356 DNA-based exonerations, we identified the real perpetrators in those cases about a half of the time. So in about 150 cases, we identified who those real perpetrators were, and we also fit, found out that those people were responsible for more than 70 rapes and more than 35 murders. And that was Wally Innocent languished behind bars. So even, when you... Yeah, yeah, yeah it's incredible. You, you, I was going to say, I didn't even think about that. So not only are you getting innocent people out through the DNA, you're finding the, the guilty people right. who are doing exactly. other crimes. How long is the average person before, how long are they languishing in jail for? Because it seems to me they're like 20, 30 years for a lifetime. Right. Well, so the average of the DNA-based exonerations, and the, that's the data set that we maintain, the um, 356 DNA-based exonerations, those folks were in prison on average for 13 years. But of course, we have prison sentences that, you know, go up to 40 years and, you know, some folks that served as little as 10 months, but not that that's little or insignificant, but, you know, compared to 38 years, you know, not the same. Um, but we, you know, but, but there are many, many cases where, and I would say many of the cases that I see are, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. So, um, so it's, Incredibly difficult. When these people find, beside it, it destroys them, it destroys their family. I can't imagine the collateral damage it does uh, when you're in jail uh -huh. for that long. And I, I can't imagine when you come out, but when they are finally um, freed, is the government do anything for them? Or do they just say, go on the street, uh, here's 50 cents for a bus? Yes, it's an excellent question, and it's a huge focus of our policy work. Um, each state is responsible for passing its own compensation law. Um, so there are uh, right now 33 states have passed laws, um, plus D.C., plus the federal government. 33 plus D.C. and the feds have passed laws compensating the wrongfully convicted. They vary widely in substance and scope. I think the two strongest laws in the country come out of very conservative states, Texas and Kansas. Um, and they are the two best laws in the country. We have other states that have woefully inadequate uh, compensation. If you look at the state of Wisconsin, for instance, they provide $5,000 per year of wrongful incarceration, and they cap it at $25,000. Um, in the state of New Hampshire, you get $20,000 no matter how many years you served. You could have been behind bars for 30 years. You get $20,000. The state of Montana only provides educational aid. Um, and so we see a huge, huge disparity in the state-based compensation laws. And a lot of our policy work is focused on improving the existing laws and, of course, passing laws in the 17 remaining states without laws. Right. There seems to be big business right now with podcasts and even some movies focused on situations like this, even if I look through history with movies like Shawshank or My Cousin Vinny, you know, they touch on these themes. And right now there's po podcasts about people who committed murder, but maybe they didn't. Um, do people scour your files and, and come in and pay you to, to sort of get these stories and are stories being made based on your work? Um, you know, as long as I've been here, and I've been here for about 13 years, there's been a ton of media interest in the cases. Um, and yes, there's been, you know, everything from serial to making of a murderer has really helped to kind of elevate um, the issue of wrongful conviction and help to, you know, raise public awareness about, you know, just how large in scope this problem actually is. 
How, how hard, once a case is brought to your attention and somebody in your group makes the decision, okay, it's going to be one of the cases you're going to work on, what's the uh -huh. time frame? I imagine it's like a decade, like a long time to overturn that conviction. How long does it take to, again, once it makes its way to your desk, not your desk, but to uh -huh. overturn the conviction or to work on it? Right. I mean, generally years. Um Sometimes and, and a lot of that is dependent on, you know, sort of um, how things shake out in negotiations with uh, the prosecutor's office. So, for instance, we sometimes get exculpatory DNA testing results, um, which we believe are probative of innocence. Um, we approach the prosecutor's office um, and in certain instances they agree and consent to vacate the conviction and bring that to the court and we do that jointly. And then in other instances, um, we are engaged in protracted litigation over many, many, many years um, because consent is not um, given. And so we have to litigate it before the courts and that can take years and years. And, you know, I think one thing that is often lost on people is that, you know, when you are... Um, uh, at, when you're first arrested for a crime, the burden is on the state to prove your guilt. Once you have been proven guilty, the burden is now on the defendant to prove his innocence. And it is an incredibly high bar to reach. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the, time, the time that it takes to exonerate somebody varies, but, uh, you know, it can take upwards of years and years and years. How big is your organization and, and what's your endowment or funding like in order to do this? Right. So, um, so we are, um, we are the national, we're the Innocence Project, but we're a national organization. We're located in New York, but we really do work in partnership with innocence organizations around the country. Um, our office is 80 people. Um, uh, we have about uh, eight litigators. We have a policy staff of eight. We have a development unit, communications, um, you know, our intake unit, which I described earlier. Um, so we have a, a whole range of folks um, kind of working on these issues in different uh, areas of the office. Um, so that's 80 people. And then we work in partnership with a um, network of innocence organizations around the country. Um, and indeed, there are some springing up around the world. Um, but every state, nearly every state has an innocence organization. Um, and we partner with them, for instance, on the policy work all the time. Um, and so when we're working to pass a law, we will work hand in hand with uh, the local innocence organization um, that is has been engaged in, in um, you know, litigation in their state. Um, so it's really quite a large movement and it's growing. Um, you know, when I started here, um, you know, the, the, I think we had a staff of 13. We've grown to 80. So I think this is an issue that's really captured the public's imagination. And, and we're funded almost entirely by individual donors and foundations, um, not government funding. And so um, the support of the public is just instrumental to us getting our work done. And, you know, we're incredibly grateful for their support. You had said before that when up until you're found guilty, the presumption of innocence is on the individual. Is that really true, or is that sort of a line we've been fed to believe? Because, again, from an outsider, it doesn't seem like you're innocent and proven guilty. It seems like when law enforcement zeroes in on you, that they're zeroed in on you. And I'm not saying there's not an impartial judge, there's not an impartial jury, but it's a very tough bar to fight when the Justice Department or the DA says, we're going to try you. Um, well, I mean, I think it's, you're right. I mean, I think it's certainly petrifying to be um, facing criminal charges when you're an innocent person. And I think that's why we see, you know, so many innocent people pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. I think, you know, that they, 
two, sort of lack faith in the criminal justice system to sort it out and actually prove their innocence. Um, and so those are some tough questions that we have to ask in this country if that if we've gotten to a point where innocent people think the rational choice is to plead guilty to something they did not do. Um, do I believe that, you know, people are setting out to, you know, frame people? No, but I do think that when you have a volume-based system, and I mean, certainly there are, you know, examples of, of people being framed, and we have had clients who have been framed, but generally speaking, you know, this is not people setting out to maliciously, you know, uh, identify a suspect and, and prosecute them. It, it really is, you know, I think sort of one of the collateral consequences of having a system that is this large. We just are not in a position to adequately investigate crimes the way that we used to. You know, I was recently reading uh, In Cold Blood, um, which I hadn't read right. for years and years, and I was really blown away by the sort of the level of the investigation in that case. I believe, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that they even had a confession out of one of the co-defendants in that case, and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation said a confession is insufficient. We need more. We need more corroboration to really know that these are the right guys. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more that, you know, people can be wrongfully convicted on the basis of one piece of evidence that is just not solid, like a confession, like an identification. Um, and so, you know, I think, again, when you have a volume-based system, it makes it that much tougher, I think, for all members of the system to adequately investigate these cases. Right. Help. How much of a high is it? And I don't know of another word to use. Or how good does it feel when you get someone who's been destroyed and put away for 20 years or whatever it is, when they are finally out? I can imagine that must be like the best feeling in the world for you and for your great staff. Uh, what's it like when you get the word that, you know, Joe Schmo is getting out of prison and he's been innocent and his life's been destroyed? Right. I mean, it's an unbelievable feeling and, you know, and it's, it just, it, it, you know, you can't, you can't even describe how wonderful it feels to watch somebody who has been fighting for years and years on end to get their good name back, um, to walk free. Um, but it's always bittersweet, um, because you can't help but think of, you know, what would have been, what could have been if this person, you know, didn't lose 20 years of their life at the prime of their lives. You know, I mean, we speak to clients all the time who talk about, you know, the families that they didn't get to have, or, you know, they weren't able to professionally develop, or they come out of prison now and they're competing in a workforce where they feel completely out of step. We've met, we have clients who've never picked up a cell phone before or used a computer. Um, so, you know, there's, of course, just huge reason to celebrate. And at the same time, you know, uh, always a moment to just reflect on just how much that person was wronged and how much was taken away and not just, and I think one of you stated this earlier and you're right on, it's not just the person, it's all of their, it's their community, it's their loved Collateral. one, it's their parents, it's their children, it's their community. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing too is, you know, the, the victim of the crime didn't get justice if the wrong person is behind bars. So really nobody benefits from a wrongful conviction. Right. Now, how did you get into this field? Do you have any personal attachment to this? Did something happen to anyone in your family or a friend? And, and if not you, I mean, are there people that you work with in the organization that that have had that experience and that drives them? Right. I, I personally haven't, um, you know, experienced wrongful conviction, uh, nor has anyone in my family. Although, um, you know, I, I certainly became sensitized to just the 
problems with the criminal justice system by, you know, working um, for the city of New York when I was first out of college and then grad school um, and, and really kind of got educated about the sort of just the fallibility of the criminal justice system through some of those experiences. I worked in the realm of juvenile justice for many, many years and, um, and you know, and sort of experienced a lot of heartbreak around that system. Um, right. And so it really sensitized me to a lot of sort of the problems in the criminal justice system and really opened my eyes to just how much, you know, was not going well and right with the criminal justice system. And there are members of our staff who, who in fact, have had some personal experiences, very few, um, you know, and even last year, one of our staff attorneys um, was here uh, who himself had been wrongfully convicted um, and then went to law school and then worked with us um, as a staff attorney for a, for a period of time. So, um, you know, and then I, I should also note that, you know, in our policy work, we work directly with the wrongfully convicted. Um, we, um, you know, they come with us to state houses, they testify, they speak to editorial boards, they tell their stories. And of course, you know, nothing drives reform more than hearing the personal experiences of the wrongfully convicted themselves. In, you mentioned New York. There was a Netflix documentary, and I forget the name of the kid, um, Broderick or Roderick. I, I forget the name, but he basically spent forever in Rikers Island, and he ultimately took his own life. What's happening with Rikers Island? Are they closing that? Yes, yeah, so I think you're referring to the Khalif Browder case. That's it. Unbelievable story. Yes. Everyone should watch it on Netflix. Gripping. Absolutely. It's a true heartbreak. And by the way, Khalif Browder really represents what happens or can happen to somebody who refuses to plead guilty to something that they did not do. He decided to fight his case. Um, and the case, by the way, the allegations against him was that he um, uh, stole a backpack. And he ended up spending, I think, close to three years on Rikers Island. Um, he was brutalized on the island. Um, top, top, by the way, he was, what right. was he, like 15 or 16? He was a yes. kid. Yes. Something like that. He was a child, yes. And came out and ultimately did take his own life. The you know post-traumatic stress of that was just more than, frankly, any person could bear. And it is just atrocious what happened to that person. But I really want to say Khalif Browder is not an anomaly there. This happens and, you know, with great frequency and it, and it should strike fear into all of us because, um, you know, and certainly there's a huge movement here in New York City, the Close Rikers movement that is seeking to close the island down um, at long last and actually build borough-based um, jail facilities so that people will be closer to home, they'll be closer to their courts so that they can receive family visits and visits from their lawyers, but also, you know, to really kind of revisit sort of what's taking place on that island because it is incredibly brutal and um, and and the racial disparities are unbelievable. And, you know, and, and it shouldn't be lost on people too that, you know, the vast majority of people on Rikers Island have only been um, you know, accused of a crime. They haven't been convicted of one. Um, only, the only people that spend uh, their sentence on the island are people that are serving approximately a year. Um, otherwise, once they are convicted, they're sent upstate. So the vast majority of people there are under the law considered innocent. And, and they're just torturized. This is, this is an unbelievable Netflix documentary. Everyone should watch it. Rebecca, I, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do. I, I really just want to hug you, not because you're a nice lady, oh. but I, I want to hug everyone there because, because you know what? Khalif Broderick is me. It's my son. It's, it's all of us. And when we turn our backs 
on society like this, it's just, it's a part, and it's really, it's a stain on, I think it's a stain, a stain on society. But what can people do, beside going to the Innocence Project, I don't, is it .com or .org? .org, and, and actually what people can do, because it's a great question, is when you go to our website, you can actually go to www.innocenceproject.org backslash pledge, and when you sign up for that pledge, um, it will keep you informed in your own state about the various policy reforms that are happening in your state and ways to get involved. So, you know, right. we will send out action alerts. We'll tell people, you know, when a good time is to call their lawmakers in support of legislation. Um, and so we really depend on the public to really be our grassroots and to, you know, let policymakers know that the public cares deeply about these issues. Um, and so innocenceproject.org backslash pledge, we welcome your participation and would be so grateful for it. I would also encourage everyone to go to Facebook and type in the Innocence Project because I get updates from them and they're like YouTube videos and they're just, again, heartbreaking and inspirational when you see someone, what they've gone through and they finally get out for something they didn't even do. Right. It's just unbelievable. Right. Bob Dylan had a great song about the hurricane. And, uh, what was you know, it? Yes. It's called Hurricane. Hurricane. Yes. Uh, Reuben Carter was the man, and he was wrongfully yeah. accused as well. And he wrote, he wrote probably to people like you, but your organization wasn't around yet, right? Right, but we did um, we did get to meet Reuben Hurricane Carter and what an inspirational man. Great. Was he the boxer? Yeah, of course. Yes. Oh, okay. Now I know who you're talking about. I didn't know, actually. I didn't know Bob Dylan <laughs> wrote a song about him. I, I, I'm a boxing. It's a fan. great song. I, I didn't know he wrote a song. Rebecca, anything that we missed that message that you want to get out there about the Innocence Project or criminal justice reform. Well, I think you really captured it with your phenomenal questions. But I mean, I think that it's just, you know, I think that people just need to get educated. I think once they learn about sort of the fallibility of the criminal justice system, they deeply want to get involved because people do care. Rebecca, I want to wish you and every single person at the Innocence Project renewed energy, more energy, more motivation to seriously try to solve these problems. I know they're big insurmountable problems, but you know what, with people like you, I really think we can solve them. It's going to take time and it's a tragedy be, uh, for what's happening, but I can't thank you yeah. enough for your work. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for coming on the show. And if there's anything we can do, please, we're an open book. You are a real well, hero. You, you are. are. You are a hero. You told me. Well, you have done so much for us. So we're really grateful for this time and to reach your wonderful audience. So just lots of gratitude to you as well. Thank, thank you. you, Rebecca. Thank er you. Everyone, Take care. thank you. Everyone else, what can I say? Go to theinnocenceproject.org, Google them, Facebook them, YouTube them. I'm serious. Check it out. Todd, fist bump it out. I love today's show <laughs> because you know what? I think we did some good for humanity. So see everyone next week. Bye. Rebecca, thank you. I don't know. Can you still hear me?